thanks, Kevin, for shepherding our hearts in prayer. And uh, Eric and Sonia, what a joy to have you serve us together. Church body and church family, it's sweet of all of you. I know you're all making great efforts to uh, join us and to be together. And so thank you for doing that. I know it is not easy. Um, just a little bit of an update that all of those who are SVP um, have said that they are all vaccinated. That doesn't account for everybody, but that's just to let you know where we're going and the direction where we're at. But by God's grace at this time, you know, we're able to gather together, albeit masked. And I would just ask you to pray to see what the Lord would have for us. Our hope would be eventually to go mass optional at some point in time and also for those who want to or those who are children who are not vaccinated to continue to wear masks. But for those who are vaccinated or are safe, that you would be able to worship without masks. That's our hope. That's where we go. But brothers and sisters, as we pray, I want you to remember that what unites us is not whether we wear masks or not masks. What unites us is the gospel, our love for Christ, our love for one another, whether someone wears a mask or they do not wear a mask. That is what has kept us together this past year, and it's what will keep us until Christ comes again. Uh, Christ's love for us and our love for one another. Well, some of you this week um, had the pleasure of starting book club. I love book club. But uh, this week as you went through book club, for those of you who went through, some will be going through this week, you were able to meet a fellow brother in Christ named Polycarp. And Polycarp was born in 69 A.D., And he was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he was ordained by the Apostle John to be the pastor and bishop of the church in Smyrna. Now, if you recall from last summer, the church of Smyrna was one of the churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus addresses directly. And he addresses that church in Smyrna in a very positive way. It is a church that is poor financially. It is a church that by the world standards is a failure. By the world standards, impoverished and poor, but in a very wealthy city. But in the eyes of Christ, they are rich. And that is... Because the persecution and poverty demonstrates that though they have little by the world standards, they are rich in Christ. And this is the church that Polycarp was ordained by the Apostle John to be the pastor of, or to be the bishop, the episcopos, the overseer. And what's worth noting noting is that some 60 years after Revelation was written down by the Apostle John after his vision on the Isle of Patmos. And in that letter, Jesus warns them, what is their reward for persevering under persecution? Do they get the trip to Hawaii? 
and the early retirement. No, it's actually more persecution. That's their reward. Their reward is that for a series of 10 days, they're going to experience imprisonment. And some will experience death. But the Lord Jesus points out that for those who overcome, the great prize and great reward will be theirs. And so we just see how Jesus' standard for what is successful and what is good in our lives is the opposite of what the world says. And what's interesting is some 60 years after Those words are written for the church in Smyrna. Polycarp, pastor and shepherd of the church in Smyrna, at the age of 86, excuse me, he was imprisoned and he was brought before a Roman proconsul. And he was brought into the stadium and before the Roman proconsul, not for insisting on his right to worship freely as a Christian. He was in prison and brought before the proconsul for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor as lord. Smyrna, in particular, was designated, because of its great loyalty to Rome, as a worship center for the Roman emperor. And it had certain privileges because of that. And if you refused to burn incense, they didn't have a problem if you had many gods. In fact, when you read that beginning, that opening page, it refers to uh, the proconsul calling Polycarp to say away with the atheists. Well, why would he say away to the atheists? An atheist, they referred to Christians as atheists because Christians were against all the idols, multiple gods, because there was only one God and one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. So Polycarp gets brought in for refusing, very simply, to have any other God or any other Lord except our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he is urged in front of the stadium by the proconsul just simply to reproach Christ and he would receive his freedom, Polycarp, before a stadium of heathens, declares very familiarly, and you read this, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Brothers and sisters, in a world of darkness, and we've seen it, where do sinners find the will and the strength to overcome suffering and sin and death? Where do we find faith and hope and love in the midst of trials and tribulation when we are indeed afraid? As we look at Polycarp, clearly it is not in ourselves. It is not in our wealth. It is not in our education. It is not in our work. And dare I say, it is not in our ministry. But as we come to Genesis 3 and we come back to Genesis 3, the Lord God shows us what Polycarp believed and what he lived. That the things we need, brothers and sisters, to carry us through this dark world are not found in ourselves. They are found in one place and one place alone. They are found in the King and the Savior 
who covers and cares for sinners like you and I, and who never does us injury, but instead covers us with his own life. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we will read verses 6 through 21, which brings us to the place where the Lord God remarkably covers and cares for the first man and woman who have betrayed him and sinned against him. Could I have my first slide, AV team? Is that doable? Excellent, thank you. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in case you haven't noticed, this is playoff season. And whether your fancy is basketball or hockey, this is a season where our evenings frequently are taken up watching men chase pucks and balls. And there's a specific lie of the devil 
that we hear very frequently during playoff season. It's typically you hear it before the game or after the game or with the interviewers when the winners are interviewed. You seldom hear it when the losers are interviewed. And they're seldom interviewed anyways. But the lie of the devil that we hear frequently during this time is you must believe in yourself. How did you get here? Well, I believed in myself. I believed in my teammates. I had confidence in myself. When things were going bad, I still, I never stopped believing in myself. And in sports and in entertainment and in Silicon Valley, the essential ingredient for success is believing in yourself. It's self-esteem. It's self-confidence. The remedy for failure is self-esteem and self-confidence. We have to love ourselves. Well, as we come to God's Word, this is what the Lord refers to as pride. And as we go through the wisdom literature, this is among the highest things that God despises. And what's worth noting for all this talk in our jobs, in our career, in our career coaches, and in professional sports about believing in ourselves, all it takes is one ankle twist, one groin strain, or one hamstring pull to show us how weak and how fragile and how foolish our self-confidence and our self-esteem And our pride is. All of those things are great when you're winning, brothers and sisters. But it's a different deal when you're losing. And as we come to Genesis 3, the Lord God, through His justice and judgment, shows the first man and woman how offensive and how destructive this belief in themselves is. And He shows us why sinners like us, and sinners like LeBron James and Anthony Davis... We can add James Harden to that list. Why sinners like us need His covering and His care so desperately. And why the faith that we need is not in ourselves or our teammates, brothers and sisters. The faith that we need is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The God who cares for us and covers what we cannot cover for ourselves. Could I have my next slide, please, brothers? Our first point for this morning is belief in ourselves covers our lives with sin and shame, and it separates us from God and one another. Belief in ourselves covers our lives with sin and shame, and it separates us from God and one another. Genesis 2 ends with the words, the God-breathed words, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. But as we come to Genesis 3, 6, and 7, which we just read, the Lord God shows us a radical change has taken place. And it's not for the better. The first man and woman are now naked and they are very ashamed. 
They're very ashamed. And they are scrambling in fear to cover themselves and their shame with fig leaves. And they are trying to hide from the presence of the God who loves them and has created them. Shame is a hot topic in our world. And in the postmodern Western world, and by the, when I say postmodern, we are the postmodern generation. Whether you want to call it millennial, social media generation, whatever. There are no absolutes. There is no right or wrong. You cannot trust anyone. You cannot trust the government. You cannot trust institutions. There are conspiracies everywhere. Everything is for the mockingjay. It goes on and on and on. In our postmodern world, shame is defined as a painful feeling of humiliation, self-hate, discomfort, or distress that is caused by the consciousness of failing to meet a set expectation. It's about failure. It's about the discomfort and self-hatred and distress that comes for failing to meet an expectation. Now, I had a conversation last night with my boys as we got ready for today. That's my warm-up. I test drive things with the boys the night before. And I said, oh, you know, when have you ever felt ashamed? And they reminded me it was when their father drove them to school and played part of the soundtrack to Peter Rabbit very loud and rolled down the windows. Dad! Do up the windows. They wanted to cover their shame. So nobody could see them. That that strange man driving the minivan is their father. I failed to meet the expectation of their peers. And so out of love for my boys, I no longer roll into school with the windows down and the soundtrack playing. But as we think about shame, okay, most of us come from Asian backgrounds. And in Asian and Middle Eastern communities, these are communities that are described as shame-honor communities. And they play very much a role in how we think of shame, even though we're Americans and we've come out of that. And within those communities, the expectations that are set And the standards that are there, which are set, which if we fail, we feel shame. They're typically the expectation of family, of parents, and of the tradition of men. The tradition of men. They're standards that are set by others in a community. And typically they're the standards of men. And if we fail to meet those standards within those communities, we feel shame. So in a Muslim community, if a family member gets baptized and becomes an infidel and becomes a Christian, the family has to handle that. They have to cover the shame. And there is what's referred to as honor killings, where a family member has to take ownership of that. And I know that sounds strange and far away, but we think of in the Asian communities, all the things that are expected of us that bring shame on our parents and families if we do not do them. And so there's that pressure. Sometimes it's we have to support our parents financially, even if sometimes it means wearing a red dress at a wedding. And the list goes on and on. But shame in our generation and shame in America very much many times is a reaction to that. 
It's the painful feeling of humiliation, self-hate, discomfort, and distress that comes by the consciousness of failing to meet our expectations. The expectations we set for ourselves. It's the fear of failure. To make ourselves feel ashamed. That we have failed or we are inadequate according to the expectations of social media, our peers, our friends, our co-workers, and ultimately ourselves. And hence, so much of the despair, anxiety, and depression in our society because we fail to live up to our expectations. In my career, I should be right here right now, but I'm right here. College, I should have been accepted here, but I'm here. Mothers, our kids should behave a certain way. And how they should perform in church, and what they should do, and where they should sit. So many of these things, it's a reaction to that old shame honor. In our lives, we think freedom is, well, I'm only going to live for my expectations. But what happens when you can't live up to your own expectations? What happens if the kids have had a bad night's sleep or they ate something that wasn't great or they're just having a hard day and they can't sit still in church? Shame for not living up to our expectations. And brothers and sisters, we see where so much of the hatred and discomfort and anxiety and fear is just accelerated, especially in this social media generation where we're just looking at what everybody else is doing. And we go one step further. That to make someone feel ashamed in our culture, to make them feel like they are a failure or they are inadequate, is considered to be the equivalent of abuse. Gaslighting. You are messing with my expectations. You're messing with my feelings. You're messing... With me, and that's off limits. My feelings of shame and inadequacy, that's private. That's me. I can do that to myself. I can beat myself up all day long. But that's not for you. I can abuse myself. But you can't do that. God forbid we should make anybody feel bad about themselves in our generation. Everyone is welcome, everyone's good, everyone's a winner until you make it to the NBA and you play for a prize. But as we come to God's word, the way in which God uses this term shame is very different. Shame in God's economy of truth and grace is not about subjective, personal, and private feelings about failure and failure to meet our expectations or the expectations of others. In fact, God comes to set us free from that. Jesus makes the point, the people who live for the expectations of themselves and others in Scripture and the Gospels are the Pharisees. Because you love the traditions of men, but the things of God are far from you. Shame in Scripture is the objective and public consequence of failing God. And that, brothers and sisters, is called sin. And in God's word, and in Hebrew, shame, bashar, 
is the public disgrace, the public dishonor, the public disappointment, the public humiliation that comes from betraying God, from failing to meet the expectations of His Word. And what is God's expectation that comes from His Word? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and through the judgment God brings, He shows them what His expectation is. That we would be what He has created and called us to be. Children of His Word. Children of His truth and grace. Children who love and trust and obey God. That's what God's expectation is of us. That we would simply be the the child who holds his hand and walks with him wherever he goes. And that's what Jesus points out in Matthew 18 when there's the pistol fight of who's going to be the greatest among the disciples. Who's got the most gifts? Who's cast out the most demons? Who speaks the best? Who's the best preacher? And he pulls them aside and says, you're putting stumbling blocks in front of one another unless you become as little children like this little child who he takes and puts in the midst. Just willing to go with the Lord wherever he goes. Unless you're willing to go with the Lord wherever he goes. Brothers and sisters, that's God's expectation of our lives. All the It's not that you go to seminary, become a pastor, become a missionary. It's that you go with the Lord wherever he goes. That, brothers and sisters, is faith. Faith not in yourself, but the one who's leading you. So when in Genesis 2.25, we're told the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed, the point being made there is that the one flesh union and life of the first man and woman are not, at the end of Genesis 2, a disappointment to God. That life that they have, that marriage that they have, that relationship that they have, is pleasing and good in God's eyes. Why? Because it lives up to and meets the expectation of God's word. And how did that come about? The first man and woman are naked and not ashamed. There's no disgrace. They're not disappointing to themselves or to the Lord. How does that come about? Well, Genesis 2, 1 through 24 shows us it's not from believing in themselves. All of this has come about from the word and work of God that has made them in their marriage a reflection of the goodness of God, bearing His image, united together in holiness and joy before the Lord. Our premarital folks, you're going through what is it that makes a marriage the light of the gospel? It's certainly not what we bring to the table, brothers and sisters. All we bring is our sin and our baggage. It's God's work in your life. It's His grace and His word that comes in and transforms frail and weak and broken people and makes it into something wonderful. And that's Genesis chapter 2, before sin. Every step of the way, it's the Lord who's setting it up and doing it and bringing them together and giving them this beautiful relationship with one another and with the Lord. And within that relationship, and that's why we talk about premarital intimacy and postmarital intimacy and what a difference it is. 
Because when it is the work of God and it is set according to His Word, it is something beautiful and good and something joyful to be celebrated. When we take it out of that context, it becomes something terribly destructive. We see here at the end of Genesis 2, because their lives and their marriage are the work of God's Word, there is nothing to hide, nothing to separate them, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be anxious about, nothing to be depressed about, nothing to be ashamed of. Brothers and sisters, that's God's work. In our lives. And where does this lead? Leads to a celebration that God Himself participates and smiles in. Brothers and sisters, what are our lives and our marriages and our families made of? What is the image that they reflect? What are we believing in to give us good lives, good marriages, good worship, good churches, good programs? What are the expectations that we are living for? The worlds, the school systems, our friends, our peers, or a God whose good work in our lives gives us nothing but His goodness and His grace. Well, by Genesis 3, 7 through 8, which we began reading this morning, as you know, everything drastically changes. Verse 7 says, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Suddenly the first man and woman are overwhelmed with fear and shame and the need to cover themselves and cover their shame and hide from the Lord God's presence. Why? They're not what they're supposed to be. And in Genesis 3.17, the Lord God explains to Adam the reason for this. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And that's a Hebrew idiom. To listen to in Scripture means to believe in and obey. To believe in and obey. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed, condemned is the ground because of you. What's the Lord God doing here? I believe... He's shaming Adam. He's exposing his shame. He's exposing his disgrace, his dishonor. He's exposing his sin. Oh God, you're abusing Adam here. What's the Lord doing? You're gaslighting Adam. You're making him feel bad about himself. He already feels bad about himself, God. Why do you have to go in there and make him feel worse? Can't we just be Chinese and not talk about it? Pretend everything's okay. Can't we be Korean and can we holler about it? Well, with these words, the Lord God shows everyone. The first man and wife's life and marriage and world 
are no longer good. And they're no longer pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because they have been unfaithful to the Lord. Shame, brothers and sisters, is about infidelity. They have been unfaithful to the Lord. They have defiled and broken their marriage and their lives. And they've done so with sin and unfaithfulness and disobedience to God's word. And now they are an offense to God and they're a disgrace and a shame to themselves. And now they need something or someone to cover their offense and shame from God, but also from one another. And brothers and sisters, where did all of this start? Well, the Lord in Genesis 3.17 shows Adam. It starts with listening and believing in themselves rather than the word of the Lord. It's believing that they knew better than God and His word how best to care for and cover themselves, their marriage and their world. Brothers and sisters, how often do we look to the Lord and His Word before we make a big decision? How often do we seek counsel? Whose Word do we value the most when it comes to pursuing a career, pursuing a course, pursuing a college, pursuing a spouse, pursuing a house? I think if we're honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, we believe in ourselves and our opinion and what's right for ourselves far more than we think. And we do what is right in our own eyes because we believe those are our personal decisions that no one else has a say in. And yet we see what the Lord God does. In love for the first man and woman. Can I have my next slide please? The shame of God's word shows us our desperate need for God's covering and care. The shame of God's word shows us our desperate need for God's covering and his care. There's a a saying or an idiom. I've got it covered. Or you've got it covered. And it suggests that I've got this problem taken care of and you don't need to worry about it. It just depends on who says it. I've got it covered, Pastor Mark. Well, maybe I do need to worry. Because as we come to Genesis 3, what we see very clearly is that the first man and woman clearly don't have anything covered, including themselves. And the best that they can do are loincloths made of fig leaves which is nothing but pathetic. And brothers and sisters, to this day, we continue to look for ways to cover the shame and disgrace of our failures and our sin. And we do so with clothing, we do it with education, we do it with career, we do it with cars and houses, and we do it with ministry as well. Plenty of folks who join the ministry or become pastors or priests because they believe somehow this is going to make everything okay only to discover, like Adam and Eve, that our best efforts to conceal our inadequacy and failure and sin is never good enough. I had the opportunity to take a young Brazilian seminary student to a prestigious pastor's event. 
He'd flown over from Brazil. He'd come. And he'd brought his best clothes and he was wearing a white shirt. And I, because he liked coffee, took him for coffee early in the morning. And little did we know that the cup that was given to him was not sealed tightly. So as we were driving and he's drinking this cup of coffee, he's got coffee dribbling down all over his white shirt. As we get there and there are all these older pastors and everyone's there, we go through the routine. What are we going to do to fix this? He felt terrible. And I felt terrible for giving him the coffee that covered this shirt with this horrible stain. And so, you know, it begins by scrubbing in the men's room, right? Scrubbing away with soap and water, which didn't do a whole lot. Trying to dry it up with paper towels or the fan that's there. Then it was a jacket that was held over like this everywhere we went, even though it was a hot day. And brothers and sisters, what was the ultimate remedy? He ended up purchasing a new shirt. And brothers and sisters, that's so often the way we handle things when we sin and we fail. We fail to realize that God has the remedy. He loves us and He cares for us. And when He brings shame into our lives or He exposes the stain, it's not to laugh or deride. Or to put us down. It's to show us that, you know what? Scrubbing this out in the men's room ain't working. You need a new shirt, and I have the new shirt that you need. And in Genesis 3, it is only the Lord God's intervention, His public shaming of Adam according to His word. By saying to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. You blew it. All of this, not only are you a hot mess, but all of this, your marriage, everything, it's a hot mess. And it's a mess because of you, Adam. It's the judgment and justice of the Lord bringing it out into the open. It's the Lord's Genesis church discipline. Exposing their sin. And exposing them and their covering as failures according to God's word. This is what shows their desperate need for God's covering and care. And this is what begins to point them in the direction of hope. It's interesting to see, so often in church discipline cases, I want to make this distinction. Shaming according to tradition and shaming according to opinion is manipulation. I shame you because I want you to do something for me, that is manipulation. But brothers and sisters, shaming according to God's word is deliverance. Exposing the fact that we are failures, gently and graciously, and showing that our efforts to try and cover things up is not working, it's making things worse, is actually a kindness. And what's very interesting is in the cases that go to step four where people leave, very frequently the complaint that they make, you manipulated, you abused, you shamed me, you told other people about my sin, you made me look like a sinner, you stopped me from coming to the Lord's table. Everything is reversed through the darkness of Satan's lies. But in Genesis 3.20... Where does the Lord shepherd Adam through his justice and his judgment? 
through exposing and bringing to light his shame and his disgrace. Adam no longer looks to himself. He no longer looks to excuses or blame shifting to cover his sin. Instead, by faith, he looks to God's promises to provide a new name and a new covering for a new wife and a new marriage. It says the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Shame apart from God's word is manipulative. But shame from God's word for sinners like you and I, brothers and sisters, is necessary. And where does this shame from God's word lead sinners? It leads us away from believing in ourselves, our work, our excuses, our covering. And it leads us to repentance and faith in God's work and God's covering. So after Adam, in verse 20, calls his wife's name Eve, verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Here the Lord God steps in to do for Adam and Eve what they tried and could not do for themselves. He covers their nakedness and their shame with new garments that are a clear contrast to those pathetic fig leaves that they have made for themselves. And the covering the Lord God makes for Adam and his wife, they're referred to as garments. In Hebrew, the word is ketanet. It's from which we get the word cotton. In the Old Testament... This is the word for robe or coat. A fine garment, a dressy robe that shows value or honor. This is the same word that is used to describe Joseph's coat that his father Jacob gives him to show him he is my beloved son. I love him better than all the rest. A coat that covers from top to bottom with sleeves. We see that the garments the Lord God makes are not of fig leaves, but they're of animal skins. And prior to Genesis 3, there is no death. And the suggestion here is that this covering is costly. It has cost a life. And in verse 21, not only does the Lord God personally make these garments of skin for Adam and his wife, he also personally clothes them. Like a father or a tailor, he is hand-fitting them. That's what that word means, he clothed them. And in the Old Testament, the garments and robes that were used to cover and clothe had three primary purposes. They were given to separate. Separate what was honorable from what was dishonorable. They were given to protect. And they were given to honor those who were beloved. 2 Samuel 13, 18-9. King David's daughters were given special robes with long sleeves. Why? It was to show everybody in the court and everybody that they belonged to King David. They were virgins. You don't touch these gals. And if you do, there's a reckoning that's going to happen. Brothers and sisters, we see the same pattern today. When you see all the professional sports players dressing up with gold chains and all their lines, they're letting you know, 
I'm something special. I'm different. I'm separate. As we come to the law, garments and robes are used, those terms, garments or robes, the ketanet is used 14 times to describe the priestly robes. Used 14 times in Exodus, Leviticus, and the book of Ezra. And together, the Hebrew words for coat or garment and clothing are used together in Leviticus chapter 8. Your homework, read it, the entire chapter. To describe Moses covering and clothing the priests in the ordination process. With the clothes that were ordained and commanded by the word of God. And Moses personally on behalf of God comes to Aaron and his sons. And he puts the turban on and the sash. And all the beautiful things that are designed to set these men apart. To show they have been clothed by the Lord. And part of that ordination ceremony is not just covering them with those robes. And fitting them with those robes. But it also involves animal sacrifices. And the placing of blood on the priest and on his clothes. showing everyone that these men who have been clothed by God and sanctified and covered by the sacrifices given by God are safe and they are fit and they are adequate to serve the Lord in His house. They are safe and they are fit and they are adequate to draw near the Lord. And if you didn't wear the priestly vestments, even if you were a priest, you weren't going to go anywhere near the Lord. You needed to be covered not by yourself, but by God. And you need to be covered by the blood of an animal in order to be made adequate or fit for service. What's this telling us? To be adequate or fit to draw near the Lord. Now that there's sin in the world, it doesn't come, brothers and sisters, from our work or me getting up and saying, I'm going to wear whatever I want and do whatever I think is best and we're going to roll this temple however we want. It's the love and grace of God to come and fit you and care for you and cover you and set you apart. And to provide everything that you need to draw close to him, brothers and sisters. Where does faith in God's word? Where does faith in the promises of God lead us, brothers and sisters? It leads us to the work of God that wonderfully covers our shame, our sinfulness, our failures, our inadequacy. And makes us fit to draw near To a God who loves us and cares for sinners like us. But as we come to this point, brothers and sisters, it's worth remembering that skins, though they are better than fig leaves, they are not permanent. And that priests and animal sacrifices, as the book of Hebrews lets us know, are temporary. And they are meant to point to our greater need A covering that is eternal and that cares for us perfectly. And this brings us to our last point for this morning. Could I have my... Yes, thank you, men. You're one step ahead of me. The covering and care all sinners need is in Christ alone. The covering and care all sinners need is in Christ alone. By design, God's covering of Adam and Eve was not permanent. 
It looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promise and his word. But what is it that keeps Adam and Eve moving forward? It's believing that whether they live long enough to see it, God's promise will come true. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the end of Isaiah. The end of Isaiah. We're going to Isaiah 64, verse 5. Isaiah 64, verse 5. And the end of Isaiah are the servant songs. The servant songs that tell of God's suffering servant who will come and save his people from their sins. What is Isaiah 64? If you come to the second half of the verse, 5b, it says, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like what? Let me hear you say it. A polluted garment. We all fade like what? A leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. You think Isaiah had read Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Now go back a few chapters and go to Isaiah 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who else says this, brothers and sisters? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Luke 4.18 says this in the launch of his gospel ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. What? What's next? Let me hear you say it. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Are you anxious? Do you struggle with panic attacks? Are you weak? What's the remedy, brothers and sisters? It's not believing in yourself. It's the garment of praise that's given to us by the suffering servant. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. Now drop with me down to verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has what? Covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because his righteousness, his love, his blood is eternal and perfect. And it covers us not with our works or believing in ourselves. It covers us with his perfect work. 
which he died to give to sinners like you and I, brothers and sisters. So that in Christ, we no longer need to be ashamed. Unity, holiness, and joy. Because this is what God made us to be. Brothers and sisters, a couple of applications as we close this down. Do you pray? So often in the Christian life, we're focused on what we need to do. But do we believe that what's going to make things right in our marriage, our life, our church, our work, our relationships is going to be God's work in us and his word in us, not our work or our efforts. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. Do you pray? Do you pray first? And do you pray last? Do you believe in Jesus, brothers and sisters? When you look at Polycarp, what set him apart is not that he was some super Christian. It's that Jesus Christ was indeed his king and his savior. And he believed in him. And the proof showed in his life is the testimony of your life, brothers and sisters. Jesus is indeed your king and savior, your hope. That by the world standards, you're poor and you're a failure and they make fun of you. But it doesn't matter because we don't live by the shame of the world or our parents or our jobs or Silicon Valley. We live to be good and pleasing in the eyes of our Father who is in heaven. Whose expectation simply is that as children we would grab his hand and walk with him. Finally, parents... As we shepherd our children this summer, we can pretend they're perfect in everything, or we can instill in them a belief in themselves. Just believe in yourself. You need more self confidence. You need to love yourself. You need more self esteem. Or we can show them the wonders of a God who loves and cares for them, who they can trust in, even when they fail. We can show them that there is no shame in failure according to the world's standards. You might not be the richest. You might not be the best. You might not get the gold medal every time. But did you trust in the Lord and did you look to Him? Do we look to God's work? And do we show them that the remedy for anxiety and despair and despondency and fear that this world is just filled and overwhelmed with is not believing more in themselves, but believing in the God who has fearfully and wonderfully made them. We can tell our children that. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made by a wonderful creator. You are not perfect. You do sin. You will drop the ball. You will fall short. But the remedy, little child, is a God who loves you and has fearfully and wonderfully made you. Do you know him? And will you trust in his son? Little children, will you love him? And will you trust in his son? Let's close our eyes and pray. Lord Jesus, what a covering you have given us. What a protection from the world. From all the things that pray in our mind to make us feel less than adequate. And yet, Lord, the one we should feel inadequate before is you, not the world. Because you are the Lord 
who covers us with the adequacy and sufficiency of the cross. Who is adequate for these things? Our adequacy is of Christ, Lord Jesus. May we be a people who believes not in ourselves, but in you. In your name we pray, amen. We have the joy of celebrating the Lord's table this morning. This is a celebration for disciples, those who belong to our Lord and Savior. This is a celebration for people who are inadequate, who are failures and who are sinners, but who have looked to the Lord to be their covering and their adequacy. So take a minute before we come to the table to consider your hearts. Do you belong to Christ?